I heard something from an older pastor one time that shocked me. I was talking to this pastor and somehow the subject of the Grand Canyon came up. And this was before I'd been to the Grand Canyon. And this pastor said, oh, I've been there. He said, my wife and I walked up to the edge. I looked and said, all right, we've seen it. Time to go. And I thought, well, there must not be much to the Grand Canyon. A few years later, I had a chance to go to the Grand Canyon. And I came up to the edge, and it was absolutely breathtaking. I I just stopped and stared and, and wanted to keep looking at the vastness and the beauty of that place. It was wonderful to behold. And beautiful things should be gazed at. Beautiful things should be looked upon and rejoiced in. You know, some of us treat the gospel of Jesus Christ the same way that pastor treated the Grand Canyon. We hear about the gospel and we just glance and think, no big deal. No major implications for my life. That's a nice little message, but not a life-transforming message. Well, this morning as we continue our study through the book of Galatians, we're going to gaze at, we're going to behold together the beauty of the gospel. Beautiful things deserve to be looked at. And and we're going to look together and and gaze deeply into the beauties of the good news of Jesus Christ. So, keeping that in mind, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. We'll begin reading in verse 1. But we're going to focus specifically on verses 3 through 5. Galatians chapter 1. Verse 1, I want to ask you this morning if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Truth with no mixture of error. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God, our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, what marvelous truth we've heard in song. We are so grateful for the powerful, wonderful, life-changing name of Jesus. And I pray that in these moments, as we study your word, that name would be lifted up and exalted in our midst. 
Lord, I pray that we would leave today thinking about that name. I pray that that going into the week, we would take that name with us. And that name would shape who we are and how we live. That precious name of Jesus. And Lord, in these moments as we study your word, I pray that you would, by your spirit, open the eyes of our hearts. That we would see the truths of scripture and we would have the inclination, the wherewithal to respond to the truths of Scripture. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. Thank you for your presence here. And we just pray that you would move with power. And we ask and pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. We began our study through the book of Galatians last week and we covered the first two verses where we saw that Paul was writing to the churches in uh, Galatia and we talked some about uh, Paul's authority and his aim in writing this letter. It was a good introduction to the overall uh, themes found in this uh, letter. And I told you last week that I believe that Paul wrote this letter from Antioch in Syria after his first missionary journey where he went through the area of Galatia, the Roman province of Galatia, preached the gospel, started churches, and after he started those churches, he went back through that area and checked on them. And after that first missionary journey, he wrote this letter because he heard some disturbing things about some false doctrine that was surfacing uh, in those churches, Antioch, Pisidia, and Iconium, and Lystra, and Derbe. He wanted to write to these churches to correct their their. Uh, false doctrine that was infiltrating those fellowships. And so that's the purpose of this letter. And Paul cares greatly about the gospel. That's why he's kind of um, uh, short in the first few verses, usually after he identifies himself and he identifies who he's writing to and he shares a word of greeting or blessing. He spends some time thanking God for some things about the churches he's writing to. We don't see that here. He gets right to the point starting in verse 6. He's angry. He cares about the gospel. He cares about these churches. And he wants to get right to the point without the the usual niceties we find in some of his other letters. So starting in verse 6, he is going to rebuke the, the Christians he's writing to because they were allowing themselves to be pulled away from the true gospel of Jesus Christ. But... Before he rebukes, he reminds. In these first five verses, specifically verses 3 through 5 this morning, he focuses on the realities of the gospel. And it's as if Paul is reminding them, before he rebukes them, hey, this is what the gospel is all about. This is why you should not be deceived by a false gospel. And so Paul causes the the readers of this letter, and causes us today to peer, to gaze at the beauty of the gospel. So what I want to do is I want to share with you from the text five, five uh, new realities that you embrace when you receive the gospel. Five new realities that you embrace when you receive the gospel. Let me give you a heads up on the front end. We're not going to get through all five. I made an executive decision this weekend that I dare not try. So we're going to get through probably three of these, and next week, if you come back, and I hope you will, it'll be part two of the same message, all right? But I want to share with you these, these 
these realities you receive when you embrace, when you hear the gospel and you respond to the gospel by uh, faith. Now, just a reminder of what the gospel is, and we'll say this often. The gospel is the message that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried early on the third day. He rose from the dead according to the scriptures. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it is a message of first priority, a message of first importance. There's no more important message because Jesus died, because he rose. Any sinner who repents of their sin and places their faith in Christ in his finished work can experience eternal life, forgiveness, a relationship with God. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And there are some realities that you receive, some things happen to you when you embrace, when you believe in that gospel message. Let me give you three of the five this morning. Number one, you receive a new father. You receive a new father. You'll see often in Paul's writings, he places an emphasis on God being our Father through Jesus Christ. And that's true in this letter as well. Look what it says in verse 1. He starts at the very first verse. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God, the Father who raised him from the dead. And so he calls God here the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know uh, that Jesus is the Son of God, and God the Father sent His only begotten Son that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so we say, well, amen to that. But then Paul says something even more striking in verse 3 when he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Not only is God the Father of Jesus Christ, He is our Father through Jesus Christ. Think about that. The God of the universe becomes your Father when you embrace Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You see, when you are saved, there is a legal declaration. Uh, a lot of this letter is spent with Paul talking about that legal declaration called justification, where he says we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That means we place our faith in Jesus Christ. God declares over our lives... We are not guilty. Our guilt has been paid for by Christ. Our sins have been washed away. We've been forgiven. God no longer holds those sins against us. We're not guilty. We're, we're justified. In other words, we have a right standing with God. That is justification. But not only is there a, a legal declaration when you and I are saved, there is a loving declaration. Because not only are you justified and given a right standing with God, you are adopted. Now listen, it would have been enough if God would just say to us, you're forgiven. I mean, that would be enough, right? That would be incredible to have our sins washed away. But how amazing is it that God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just make a legal declaration. He makes a loving declaration. He says, you are my children. Wow. God, our Father. And when you are saved, you receive a brand new Father. Let me tell you about this Father. Our Father is a good Father. Who... Gives us grace and peace. Look what he says there in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from 
God our Father. Where does grace come from? God our Father. Where does peace come from? God our Father. And he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, grace is unmerited, undeserved favor. It's blessing that God pours out upon us that we do not deserve. And can I remind you that if there's anything good in your life, it's grace. You don't deserve it. I got a lot of good in my life, and I deserve none of it. I'm a sinner who's, who's, who's rebelled against a holy God. But God has poured his blessing upon me through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's grace. It's, it's undeserved favor. The word peace, irene in the Greek language, is a wonderful word. It's a word that means wholeness, completeness. When you are saved, God makes you whole. He brings you into relationship with himself. And he gives you a... A spiritual well-being. That's what that word peace means. Spiritual well-being. Relationship with God. Absence of conflict. Harmony with the Creator. That's that word peace. And this grace and this peace comes from God our Father. Listen, He's a good Father. Now this is important. Let me tell you why this is so important. Some of you have or have had really good fathers earthly fathers i mean they were they were good dads loving responsible and you have fond memories when you think about them or, or you have fond memories in the days that they may still be alive and in your life and you have you have a you have good you have good dads how amazing is it that god our father is even greater than your good earthly dad Because his love is a perfect, unfailing love. He never blows it. He never messes up. He's a good, good father. So even if you have a good dad, a great dad, God our Father is a perfect father. And maybe you're here today. Maybe your relationship with your earthly father was not so good. Not so wonderful. Maybe not some... You don't have any fond memories. Maybe it's a dad that's still living and there's estrangement in the relationship. Or, or perhaps your dad has stepped into eternity and you don't have that relationship with him anymore. And there may be some, even some regrets in your life. And you look back and say, I just never had a good model of a dad. How amazing is it that God steps into the middle of your life and says, I will be your good father. I will be what you need. I will encourage. I will provide. I will protect. I will watch over you. And that's important because ultimately all fathers, even well-intentioned fathers, fall short, right? But we have a perfect father in Jesus Christ. And that is an amazing reality. Now think about my relationship with my earthly father and growing up he did a good job teaching me respect for his authority i remember in my teenage years i would get kind of teenagery you know what i mean by that and uh and and i would you know i would get kind of disrespectful in my tone or my voice and dad would just say remember who you're talking to that's all it took i had a respect for my dad's authority but not only do i have respect for his authority 
we had a we had a good relationship. We'd have, we have we, when we see each other, we haven't seen each other in a while. We embrace. I hug my dad. He hugs me. There's there's a loving relationship there. And, and see, some people that uh, are trying to 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 live for the Lord and pursue God, they they have a, a a concept of God all authority. All he's just all authority. They miss that God desires embrace. Because our Father, He wants us to draw near to Him in loving relationship. He is our Father. We are His children in Jesus Christ. We should draw near, right? So Paul begins this letter by talking about God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Then he says something amazing. God, our Father, through Jesus Christ. And so at the moment of conversion, at the moment of conversion... You receive a new father. The God of the universe adopts you. Now later on in Galatians, he's going to talk a lot about this. We're going to talk about adoption in in chapter 4 when we get there. Some great stuff. And he's kind of foreshadowing that here. But notice here, Paul is is bent on helping the, the churches in Galatia understand the fatherhood of God. So when you embrace the gospel, you receive a new father. Number two. Not only do you receive a new father, you receive a new first priority. A new first priority. Notice what Paul writes there in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the... Say the next word with me. Lord, Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Not only does grace and peace come from God, our Father, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses that word kurios often throughout his letters, throughout his writings. He calls Jesus Lord often. You see, when you are saved, Jesus is your Lord. Jesus is your Lord. He becomes or should become the the number one priority of your life. That's what it, it means when you call him Lord. If you call listen, if you call him Lord and he's not number one in your life, you don't mean it. Right? You see the word Lord is a is an all encompassing word. And the Lordship of Christ encompasses every area of your life. Every area. Jesus calls for every area of your life to be surrendered to His Lordship. It's an all-encompassing word. And that's what it means when you are saved. You step into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you live with Jesus as Lord of your life. The, the Lordship of, of Christ. Now here's what we like to do in our Christianity. And I know this from firsthand experience because I try to do it sometimes. We like to compartmentalize our lives, don't we? We like to put our lives in, in different boxes, right? This is my... 
This is my financial box, and this is my recreation box, and this is my family box, and this is my work box, and this is my school box, and, and these are the different compartments of my life. And hey, uh, Jesus, I'll give you this box over here, you know, maybe my, my religious box or my church box, I'll give you that box, but stay away from this financial box, and I don't really want you to affect how I, how I respond to folks in my place of employment or my school i don't want you to i don't want you to have anything to say about my viewing habits or listening habits or my thought life or my priorities or my kids activities that's off limits god now you can have this box those other boxes leave those alone that's how a lot of people try to walk with god and the word lord won't allow you to do that it's an all-encompassing word. Listen to me. Jesus demands every box because he's worthy. He's king of kings and lord of lords. And he wants every piece of your heart. He wants it all. I read this morning in the Bible that God is looking for wholehearted people. Wholehearted devotion. He wants all of our lives. Not just a part. He wants all of our lives this speaks of the the lordship of christ i read a, a sermon this weekend from a theologian named john murray and he was talking about the lordship of christ from a different passage but he pointed out and i thought it was fascinating that there are two different uses of lord when applied to jesus christ he said, first of all, there's the lordship that comes with him being eternal creator. I mean, he's the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, so he has authority in that, right? I mean, the one who creates everything calls the shots, amen? He's the creator. Jesus, our triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, creator, sustainer of everything. And so Jesus has lordship from that perspective. But the Bible also talks about a different kind of lordship. It talks about a lordship that was given to him after he obeyed the Father perfectly by dying on the cross. It says over in Philippians 2 that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So that, listen, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In other words, Murray says that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, God the Father made sure that the highest conceivable glory was given to him. And he deserves to be Lord of every area of our lives. Every area. And so, is Jesus your first priority? I worked for a summer with Campus Crusade for Christ, wonderful parachurch ministry. I was in the home office in Orlando, Florida. And I got to meet Bill Bright. Bill Bright's since gone on to be with the Lord. Great man of faith, great man of God. God used him greatly to reach college campuses in the, in, in, in the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. And Bill Bright 
wrote this little pamphlet called, Have You Made the Discovery of the Wonderful Spirit-Filled Life? I'd never heard of the Spirit-Filled Life, and so I was eager to read this pamphlet. And I remember there was a, a page in there with an illustration. It always just stuck out to me. He, he gives an illustration basically of two different heart conditions. And to symbolize the condition of the heart, he drew a little throne. Okay, a little throne. And one heart condition was symbolized by a throne with the letter S on the throne, which stands for self. The next picture was the throne with a cross on the throne to symbolize Christ ruling your life. And here's the point he was making. Everyone has a throne in their heart. And either Jesus or self is on that throne. Let me ask you a question this morning. If, if, we could, if we could picture what's going on in your heart up on the screen this morning, everyone could see it, that's frightening, isn't it? But, it? but if we could picture what's going on in your heart, who's enthroned in your heart, would there be a S for self? Or would there be a cross for Jesus? Is Jesus really your first priority? Or are you just playing religious games? When you embrace the gospel, you receive a new father and you receive a new first priority. But it doesn't stop there. You also receive a new family. A new family. Notice what the Bible says there in verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Notice that word, our to deliver us, notice the word us, from the present evil age. The present evil age. I think it's interesting that in verse 2 he mentions the brothers who are with me, talking about the Christians who were with him when he was writing this letter, probably the Christians in Antioch of Syria. And then in writing to the churches in Galatia, he uses those pronouns. Our and, and us. Why? He's communicating that they are part of the same family. And, and here's what happens when you become a born-again believer in Jesus Christ. You get a brand new family. In Christ, you belong to the family of God. Now, people in our society are looking for a place to belong, aren't they? I mean, even if people act like they're not, they want to belong to something. It's a, a basic hunger of the human heart to, to belong. In Christ, you get a family that's about well, millions and millions strong. You get a brand new family. You belong to the family of God. Let me tell you about the family of God. The family of God is big. Like I said, millions and tens and tens of millions, hundreds of millions of Christians in this world. And it's, and it's wonderfully diverse. Now remember, Paul was a Jew. Who's he writing to? He's writing to churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Mostly Gentiles. Now there are probably some Jews there in the churches in Galatia. But we know from reading the book of Acts chapter 14... Uh, that there were also many Gentiles who were saved. So he's writing to people that live in a different, a different place in the world. Different languages, different ethnicities, different skin colors, different backgrounds. And yet he says, 
power and us. We're in the same family. And the family of God is big and it is diverse. And if you don't like that, you will be miserable in heaven. Because the Bible says that when we get to heaven, there will be people around the throne from every tribe, every tongue, every language, worshiping the Lamb who was slain. Amen? That day is coming. So if you don't like diversity in the body of Christ, then you're going to be miserable in heaven. And if you're opposed to reaching people who are different, do you have God's love in your heart? The family of God is big and wonderfully diverse. I've traveled all over the world, and one of the most amazing things about, about traveling and going to other countries is meeting Christians and, and you meet them for the very first time, and sometimes they don't even speak the same language, can't even understand each other, but you know you're on the same page. Like it says in Ephesians, one faith, one Lord, one baptism. You're on the same page. When I went to Uganda, I had the opportunity for the first time to meet Pastor George. We'd been working with him in a partnership through our church. We met him through Frank's relationship with him when Frank and Jerry Ann lived in Africa. We, have, we still have an ongoing partnership with Pastor George and the Fumbira people in the southern tip of the nation of Uganda. And we got to uh, uh, Kampala, and Fluent and Tebby got a, a vehicle in Kampala, and we made the trek. It took us about 13 hours. I see Alvin. Alvin remembers that. We had, I think, three flat tires, and we have to fix a flat, go to the next town, and get the tire fixed and keep going. And it was a long, bumpy road, and we got to Kosoro at night, and we were all tired. I mean, I just, I was ready to go to bed, right? I mean, we've been, we've been going all day long. I know Alvin and Frank were tired from changing tires, but, but, uh, we got there, and Pastor George came out to greet us, and he would not even think of us going straight to our hotel. He was going to welcome us and want to spend time with us, and Got out some soft drinks for us to drink. And I'll never forget it. We got out this it was at night. There's not a lot of light. You couldn't see. There's a path going up to his his house. And and we began to... So he, I met him. And I, I hugged him. I'd heard so much about Pastor. I hugged him. And we began to walk up the path. And Pastor George just grabbed my hand. Started walking hand in hand up the path. Now, listen. That's a cultural deal, all right? That, that often when, when people are walking together, they'll hold hands. And that's a cultural deal. Um, but... And the team kind of laughed at me. But we were walking and holding hands. And and uh, it was just like I had known Pastor George forever. I mean, we were just flat on the same page, just loving Jesus, wanting to get the gospel out. Uh, he was my brother. On the other side of the world, never met him. But I'm in the same family, you see. And that matters. It matters. So when you and I are saved, we get brothers and sisters in Christ, a family to belong to. And, and a local church is a microcosm of that. It's a, it's, a, it's a small, maybe nuclear family, if you will, within the kingdom of God. And we should enjoy our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, just like any family, there's no perfection here, amen? 
Has your family perfect? Can I get a... Anybody got any... Every, everybody's got a little crazy, right? And, and, and our family, our, listen, our local family, we're not a perfect family, but we're family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. That ought to count for something. We get a new family when we get saved. And it is a tremendous, tremendous gift. And we get to spend all of eternity with that family. How amazing will that be? And so I'd love to go on to number four, but that's going to take me a while. So we're going to deal with number four next week. Number four is really important. I want to give time for that. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. When you embrace the gospel message, you receive a new father, a new first priority, a new family. We're, listen, we're gazing at the gospel, right? We're not just glancing like the Grand Canyon and walking away. We're saying, hey, this calls for our attention. We need to, we need to slow down and, and, and just gaze for a few moments together. And here's the point I want you to walk away with today. And it'll be the same takeaway next week as well. You ready? Faithfulness to the gospel and fervor for the gospel is strengthened when we see the beauty of the gospel. Let me say that again. Faithfulness to the gospel and fervor for the gospel is strengthened when we see the beauty of the gospel. As you and I behold the beauty of this good news. We'll want to cling to it tighter, won't we? And we'll want to share it more. And we, listen, we would not dare walk away from this message for a false gospel.